Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. The second half of the last decade was a lot. Terrorist attacks across Europe, Brexit, the global impact of Donald Trump's election in the US. So many of us are looking forward to reliving the Roaring Twenties. But, well, that didn't quite go as planned. Iran says it will take revenge for the U.S. killing of its most powerful military commander. Growing concern as the toll from that deadly coronavirus now grows. Breaking news, stay at home. That is the order tonight. Russia has launched a military assault on Ukraine. The war in Ukraine has begun. Shifts in everything from geopolitics to trade and public health also meant changes to the political order in several countries. Joseph R. Biden Jr. is elected the 46th president of the United States. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson resigning today. Italy is set to elect a far-right leader. President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has claimed victory. Luis Inácio Lula da Silva has been voted in as Brazil's next president. As well as changes to the global economy and the boom underway in artificial intelligence. All this has happened as companies in the US and around the world realize just how reliant they've become on strong but narrow trade routes. Bloomberg dispatched reporters around the world to see how the situation is changing on the ground and what conclusions can be drawn. Malcolm Scott, Jenny Leonard and Brendan Murray are here to make sense of it all. I'm Rosalind Matheson, in for Wes Kosova. Today on The Big Take, the world's changed a lot over the past three years. So could a shift in global trade be the start of a great reset? Brendan, your Big Take print story is all about the great reset as companies change up their supply chains. But what made you and your colleagues want to write about this? Well, there were two reasons, really. And the first had to do with the lack of available data. Trade data are notoriously backward-looking, Most of the numbers we get from the government come out with a month or two lag, so they don't really do us much good. They're good at telling us what happened in the rearview mirror, but not good at watching what's changing in real time. The second catalyst has to do with the pandemic lockdowns, when reporters and editors got really good at doing what they do from the confines of their own home. But what we wanted to do was send a dozen Bloomberg reporters out in the field to see what was really going on on the ground. And we've got a really interesting array of examples that we'll talk about in greater detail. But Mal, can we talk a bit more about the Great Reset itself, what we mean by that? Are we basically talking about events mostly since 2020? The economic drivers of this Great Reset or the sort of slow rewiring of the global economy, they've been around for a while. You know, China's been on this industrialization path for a couple of generations now. It's really a political catalyst that's made us really come to this point now where we are talking about this as a reset. 
You know, Donald Trump's presidency brought his protectionist policies to the fore. China bashing became a sport in the US. Not only has China declined to adopt promised reforms, it has embraced an economic model dependent on massive market barriers, heavy state subsidies, currency manipulation, product dumping, forced technology transfers, and the theft of intellectual property, and also trade secrets on a grand scale. And then President Biden has really sustained much of that, if dialing back on some of the rhetoric, but those punitive tariffs, they're still in place. They haven't gone anywhere. And then he's layered on, even doubled down on this reshoring narrative that's really driving not only the US, but others to rethink their supply chains. And at the same time, China's perceived economic coercion of trade partners that it's tried to slap on the wrist, such as Australia, when countries don't do it as it would please, that seems to have really backfired. And that's really accelerating rather than detracting from this push to reshore, revisit supply chains, diversify from China. Well, it's interesting, Mal, to hear you talk about the political imperatives here. And I want to bring in Jenny. Do you see this as purely just down to the trajectory of the relationship between US and China or what else might be at play? Well, it has a lot to do with the trajectory of the US-China ties. Obviously, it started in the Trump administration, but we have seen sort of the through line to the Biden years. But, you know, populism in U.S. politics means now in both parties that politicians want things to be made in America again. Tonight, I'm announcing new standards require all construction materials used in federal infrastructure projects to be made in America. And so that, apart from the U.S.-China relationship, is what we will see going into the 2024 election and presumably also going forward. We were always going to be at this point, or was it just expedited by those sort of events of the past few years in particular? Global trade had basically plateaued about five or 10 years before Donald Trump came into office. And companies were already starting to kind of back away from China, seeing that they were overly concentrated there. So it was already in motion before But the trade war, the tariff war that Donald Trump launched against China. President Trump tonight escalating his trade war with China, threatening new tariffs that they're coming soon and they are sweeping. And then the pandemic and then you layer on Russia's war in Ukraine and all of those things accelerated the risk calculation that companies were going through. If you're a company now and you're looking at 80 percent of your production is in China, You better be thinking about cutting that, say, in half or at least by a third if the political situation deteriorates any further. It's interesting to hear you talk a bit about Ukraine as well, because when we talk about this, it's really the entire world that's affected. I was trying to think of any country that may not be affected by this, and I sort of came up with North Korea and not much else. Brendan, let's talk about Western nations first in that, in some of the research and the work that we did for this story. Is there an example where you could highlight the particular impact that we're seeing on what you think is the West? So Italy is a really good example, stemming from the Russian war in Ukraine, not necessarily the China situation. So in southern Italy, we dispatched a reporter to an Adriatic seaport called Brindisi. This is an ancient Roman city with ruins from the 13th century. Today, it's become a busy gateway for natural gas imports from suppliers all over the Mediterranean. That's a big change from just a few years ago when natural gas used to flow north to south through Italy. 
originally from Russia. That gas pipeline has literally been reversed and it's now handling imports in a northward direction from countries in North Africa and elsewhere that are trying to replace those Russian supplies. And Jenny, do you see much of an impact in the U.S. itself? I mean, the U.S. has been obviously a champion of trying to get companies to redesign their supply chains. For all the work so far that's gone on under the Biden administration in particular, has anything worked? Obviously, the Biden administration has really zeroed in on semiconductors, clean energy technology, raw materials. They've passed multiple laws over the last two years that, you know, include billions in subsidies for these sectors to incentivize coming to the U.S., which is a much more expensive place to build a fab and then in the end make semiconductors. Those laws will take years to bear fruit. And we've seen TSMC, the big Taiwanese semiconductor company that was sort of the big hope to build a fab in Arizona said that it's going to push back its production timeline until 2025, which, of course, politically is not so convenient for the Biden administration because they would love to send the president or the commerce secretary to a ribbon cutting ceremony before the election in November and say, hey, look, we've said we would make chips in America and here's the first chip made in America. And that really seems like that's really not in the offing anymore. And Mal, there are impacts also on emerging markets. We have looked across the breadth of emerging markets and there's some interesting examples in the story also about that. The unifying theme that we've sort of come across, and of course we're hearing from the bottom up in this story, but also the top down in academia land, is that The emerging markets, they don't want to get caught in the middle of this. They want to benefit from it. They're coalescing around this concept of the global south. They're taking a transactional view. They don't want to pick sides in any confrontation, be it the US and Russia, be it uh, the economic confrontation of the US and China. So some winners are being created. Our story looks at a couple of examples where specific locations seem to be doing pretty well out of this rewiring of the global economy. So in Morocco, just about a half an hour's drive inland from Tangier. There's a port that's um, really doing well, the Tangier Tech City that's being developed with Chinese and Moroccan government support. South of the US border with Mexico, truckers there are struggling to keep up with demand as the rerouting of demand from the US means that uh, they're buying more from Mexico. Our Bloomberg Economics economist estimates that uh, the tariff goods are down about $150 billion relative to their pre-trade war trend from China. Mexico's filled about $90 billion of that gap. So there are winners, but the real overwhelming danger longer term is that these sort of protectionist policies, the reshoring policies, In the end, they may make it harder for the next batch of economies to get onto that first couple of rungs of the development ladder, and that shuts off an avenue of growth and development for countries with vast and rapidly growing populations. Now, that's not going to be good for the emerging world. I think one of the caveats there that we should address is that this is not easy. Vietnam, Thailand do not have the infrastructure to flip a switch and start producing goods like China does. So this is going to be a costly and time-consuming process, and it's going to mean a lot of dislocation for workers. It's going to mean a lot of risk in the investment that goes into these countries. But ultimately, I think what we're seeing are the very early signs, the very early days of a process that we'll see play out for a long time. And Jenny, just to Mal's point about these countries saying 
They don't want to have to pick a side and also concern that their own development will be affected as a result of this. It's something, a narrative that China and other countries seem to seize on because it can get some good traction. But does the US administration see that and how are they going to be able to counter it? I think the Biden administration does see that, but it's very hard to counter that narrative because when I talked about the U.S. populism, you know, anti-trade sentiment that sort of feeds into politics here, that is going to continue. And that is what I'm hearing from some people who are advising the administration on how to counter that narrative. They would love to have a positive trade agenda. They would love to have something like a TPP A major victory for President Obama and his economic agenda as the U.S., Japan and 10 other countries have approved the Trans-Pacific Partnership. That President Trump withdrew from in his first week in office and nobody really in the U.S. seems to be wanting to go back to that agreement. So the Biden administration came up with a different approach, which is called the IPEF. U.S. President Joe Biden has signed up a dozen countries to help challenge Chinese dominance in Asia. During a tour of the continent, he announced the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, saying... That has lots of pillars, but is not supposed to be a trade agreement. Because it's not, it's also not going to get the benefits on the market opening and tariff reduction that the TPP countries were looking for. You see a lot of sticks from this administration, as we have from the Trump administration, saying more tariffs, more restrictions subsidies in the U.S. to incentivize you or penalize you if you're not doing this. So what is the carrot? Where is the carrot coming from for Vietnam, for Japan, for other countries that are part of the now loosely agreed to IPEF agreement? Because that's missing, I think they have a harder time convincing these other countries. We're not trying to have you choose, but, you know, this is the right way. And I think that's going to play out over the next couple of years. After the break, how have US-China tensions affected international trade? From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Let's talk a bit specifically about China and this question now of decoupling or diversification. Mal, let's go back a little bit and talk about how we even got to this point where so many companies and countries found their supply chain so dependent on China. How did that happen? China opened in the late 70s. There was those reforms led by Deng Xiaoping. At that stage, China's share of global trade was less than 1%. Zoom through the 80s and 90s, rapid growth in China's manufacturing sector along with its overall economy. But this all got super turbocharged by the entry into the WTO in 2001. 
That entry coincided with the revolution in communications technology that allowed mega companies, big global companies to track their diversified supply chains, you know, with stuff like the internet. And we could communicate with suppliers through things like email for the first time. And the labor force in China was in that sweet spot. The uh, education system had created, you know, a skilled labor force by that stage. So there was just a secret source. Coming to the mid-2010s, and all of a sudden, the world started to wake up to the fact that, uh, wow, China's really eating everyone's lunch here. And in the process, manufacturing sectors elsewhere around the world were being hollowed out. Then in 2015, China sort of stuck its head above the parapet a little bit with the China 2025 industrial plan that identified these 10 industries in which it wanted to become globally competitive over the next decade. So now just two years from where we are today. That sort of was the economic backdrop to what then uh, happened on the political front. Brendan, I'm curious your perspective here on this. I mean, we talked about the Great Reset and that beginning, but for many companies, it's just not easy just to say, that's it, we're going to change our supply chains. But are there also a lot of companies that simply don't want to? Well, the companies that are having the most difficulty are the ones that want to sell into the Chinese market. You can produce lots of goods inexpensively there and export them, but China has, you know, upwards of a billion or more people now that are increasingly in the middle class, even affluent. They've got a lot of money to spend on Teslas and Swiss watches and other things that we report on week in and week out at Bloomberg. So there's definitely a reluctance. You see it in the big the Wall Street banks that want to finance a lot of the infrastructure and economic development that China still has to do. It's a, you know, you can't live with it, you can't live without it kind of arrangement with China now. A lot of companies are finding out that if you do leave China or speak in a way that isn't pleasing to the Chinese government, that, you know, there will be repercussions for that. So they're trying to walk a fine line. Very few of them are just pulling up their tent stakes and leaving. You know, what's interesting is that I think some of the firms are more impacted maybe by Xi Jinping's policies than by what the Biden administration is putting forward as policies to sort of lure them back home. They're spooked by, you know, a crackdown on the U.S. due diligence sector. Micron, we've seen the Chinese go after. Well, Chinese regulators vowed to ban some domestic purchases of chips made by U.S. firm Micron Technology. The Chinese sort of promising this is just the first step. In a way, having this uncertainty in the Chinese market is something that they're also trying to grapple with, more so than actually heeding the Biden administration policies. But of course, we're also seeing policies that the White House has been working on for two years now, trying to limit the investment in certain sectors in China. The U.S. is now planning to place a limit on exports of American shipmaking equipment to China. The latest move is aimed at halting China's advances in the realm of semiconductor production and protecting American firms. Possibly creating a chilling effect for these companies thinking, do we really want to put our money there? Do we really want to put our know-how there? The U.S. does not believe that there is a private sector in China, that all the know-how, all the money, everything you do there goes to the military. And that, of course, could be used against the U.S. military if there is a conflict. So those are also underlying factors that some of the firms are grappling with. It's really interesting, Jenny, with that, seeing, of course, lots of comments from officials in China of late sort of reassuring on the private sector 
not a lot of specifics in any of that so far, but certainly trying to send a message again and meeting, of course, with sort of executives from US companies. As tensions between the US and China remain at an all-time high, Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates has met President Xi Jinping. And that's happening all the while they're cracking down on some of these sectors. And the White House, which is usually pretty quiet on the China front, has actually been seizing on that, saying they're seeing a concerning pattern and sort of sending the message to the business community. Maybe the Chinese are trying to play at both sides here. It's up to you what you do, but, you know, you see the risks here. So that's sort of an interesting new development that we've seen over the last three months, I would say, coming from the White House. And of course, none of this is happening in a vacuum. We've been talking about some of the policies that we've seen from China. But Mal, I'm curious, how does China see all of this? What is the impact that you've seen so far, if any, on the economy of China? China isn't sitting back abashed and uh, tail between its legs. It continues to press ahead with plans to develop these industries, such as AI, EVs, where companies such as BYD are making great strides effectively doing that via skirting the US. They're not trying to sell BYD EVs in America. That's just too tough. But let's sell them to the rest of the world instead. China's waging a war, not in the Pacific, but on Australian roads. Its manufacturers are locked in a heated race to bring the cheapest electric vehicle to our market. They're ploughing ahead on that front. But by the same token, they're also aware that just as the rest of the world is maybe a little bit too reliant on China, China's economy was perhaps a little bit too reliant on the rest of the world. So since around mid-2020, we've heard more from Xi Jinping and others about this dual circulation growth model. The dual being, let's stick with the global engagement, let's uh, continue to do that, but let's back it with additional domestic demand. And also, let's assemble more of those components, or produce rather, more of those components ourselves, so that we're assembling products that are made from components that are also made in China. So that value-added, that all-important value-added stays at home. And then the third thing they're doing is, just as uh, the US and other Western like-minded countries are trying to diversify away from China a little bit, so China is trying to back away from its reliance on those markets. And it's having some success. It's diversifying its customer base and uh, selling more, for instance, to its Southeast Asian neighbours. Coming up, what follows the Great Reset? Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. We've talked a lot in this conversation about the Great Reset, but I want to just come into something a bit more specifically, and this is something, Jenny, you've touched on so far in the conversation, which is the US election, which is coming up late next year. And you could argue that Joe Biden has been a more protectionist president than his predecessor, Donald Trump. But equally, is the US political climate at this point where no one can afford to not be seen to be protectionist? Sort of, yes. I think when it comes to the U.S.-China relationship, there's multiple layers of concerns from 
national security to human rights, which we've seen a lot in the apparel sector, you know, Xinjiang, the Western Chinese region. There's a whole law that was passed that sort of now bans cotton coming in and other products coming in from that region. So if you look to 2024, former President Trump, who's running for re-election, is promising a full decoupling from China now. He sort of thinks that he hasn't done everything he could have done in his four years in the White House. So now he is really going at it in part two, promising a full decoupling. And so everyone sort of on the Republican side is measuring their stance based on what Trump has already done, what Trump is promising. You don't really hear anyone who is pro-business, pro-engaging with China uh, on the Republican side. And of course, President Biden, who's running for re-election, has similar views and has continued some of the policies that we've seen from the Trump administration. So on China, I think we will see the protectionism going forward. I think another thing to keep a close eye on as we go through the campaign season and, and rhetoric kind of flies around is any pushback that this decoupling that we would get from the Republican candidates gets from the business community because tariffs were not a popular strategy. Donald Trump got a lot of political mileage out of them from his base, but tariffs were not popular. And if the pandemic didn't come along, we might have been looking at more tariffs and phase of inflation that might have been caused by tariffs. A decoupling from the Chinese economy sounds like a, a really good hawkish uh, approach, but I bet if you asked the big corporate donors if they would like that, you'd get a, a different answer. And Jenny, you were talking, of course, about how other allies have supported the US in this, but a sense of unease also at the pace of it and perhaps being driven overtly by US foreign policy. And, you know, going back to what Mao was talking about, the global south, countries are feeling caught in the middle and India is a really interesting case. Brendan, can you talk a bit more about India? Yeah, so India, like you said, is one of these really interesting examples. It wants to be the beneficiary of the de-risking that companies are doing from China. It wants to make iPhones and other high-tech equipment, and it wants to benefit from the shift away from China economically. But on the geopolitical side, it's portraying itself as a neutral in the, you know, sort of China-Russia axis against the West. It, we'll see how long it can kind of stay in the middle there. For the story that we're talking about, we had a reporter go to a factory outside of New Delhi, that's getting the financial support from the Modi government. It's this facility where we learned that even the CFO who we talked to said, we're doing very well, we're making mobile phones, but it's going to take years and years. And so this, this process, it's complicated. The infrastructure, in even in a place like India, is not up to par with China. So all this talk about racing to catch up to China or replace China is a really difficult process. Even as India does seek to be the next China, Ironically, that's boosting, not reducing, its reliance on shipments from China. Because as they seek to boost their manufacturing sector, they need to be buying those components or the machines that make the components from China. Do you see, Mel, any other unintended consequences of this great reset when you look around the world? I mean, from an economics perspective, they abound. We're trying to tackle this big inflation shock and many of these measures are only going to make the goods that we buy more expensive. So that's going to get tougher. There's the misallocation of resources as, um, as governments try to pick winners. Historically, that's not proved to be a good 
idea. You know, if, if, if we're all pushing to reshore and manufacture these certain so-called strategic products, it probably won't be too long until there's a glut of those things. And we're all talking about the misallocation of resources that happened. I think one of the most basic unintended consequences that we could see play out is there's all this talk about reshoring, nearshoring, bringing production back home to create manufacturing jobs when a lot of those jobs are just going to be automated. The technology is such now that you don't need a thousand people in a factory to make a car anymore. You need some robots and a few hundred. We visited a company in County Kerry, Ireland that's making products for IKEA by the way of uh, 3D printing. There's no need for Chinese production or production anywhere else. It just happens without any sort of supply chain at all. So those are the kinds of advances that we're seeing that could make the next several decades really interesting. Where do you see the Great Reset going? If you think about what the world might look like in five years from now or 10 years from now, do you see a radically different global economy? I think the length and the degree of the transformation is going to depend on whether the U.S.-China conflict goes from a Cold War situation to a hot one. It will transform very quickly if we're in some sort of military conflict with China and the decoupling will happen almost overnight. The short answer is it's going to be a slow, costly process, but we're going to see the world change before our own eyes over the next decade or two. You know, Brendan mentioned the China situation which, of course, has to do with Taiwan, which is the center of the global semiconductor industry. I think it's going to be really interesting to watch there. Taiwan is also having a presidential election in early 2024. They really want the semiconductor industry to remain centered on Taiwan because that gives them a little bit of what they call the silicon shield. So I'm watching that election very closely. Brendan? Malcolm Jenny, thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Ross. Thank you, Ross. Thank you. Thanks for listening to us here at The Big Take. It's a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us with questions or comments to bigtake at bloomberg.net. The supervising producer of The Big Take is Vicky Vergolina. Our senior producer is Catherine Fink. Federica Romaniello is our producer. Our associate producer is Zainab Siddiqui. Raphael Amsili is our engineer. Original music by Leo Sidron. I'm Rosalind Matheson, in for Wes Kosova. We'll be back tomorrow with another Big Take. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio.